Ever since doing psychedelics, I understand a lot more about the connection people have. And I understand about what it can do for them. And I now feel like I'm less ignorant to people's beliefs and less ignorant to people's standpoint on something. Because if someone having a higher being or a higher power or a God of their kind can give them 10% of what I experienced on psychedelics, I think they should absolutely do that whenever they feel the need. Hi guys, I'm Alex Holmes and this is Time to Talk. On Time to Talk, each week I speak to experts in their field about how we can be more compassionate, more wholehearted and more open with ourselves and others and what this means for mental health and the way we live today. Welcome to the last few days of 2020. (laughs) I am personally feeling the effects of the end of the year, so I imagine that you are too. Rest up. Christmas is coming new year is coming re-energize get yourselves together we've got another 12 months ahead of us but the rest is coming today's episode i really enjoyed this podcast has brought me so much joy this year the conversations i've had the people that i've met and there will be a a roundup episode coming in a few weeks but just want to share my gratitude for all of you who are listening and have been listening each week and the company that you guys have given me and the conversations I've had have just got me right through to the end of this year. But that's enough of that for now. You'll get that in a later episode. (laughs) Today I'm speaking to the straight-talking, no-nonsense personal trainer, James Smith. He is the host of his own podcast, The James Smith Podcast, but he's also the author of two Sunday Times bestsellers, Not a Diet Book and his latest, Not a Life Coach. We talk about both of those books, we talk about his philosophies, but also in this conversation we talk about personal training, mental health, masculinity, and psychedelics. Yes, we go there. We talk about our personal experiences with psychedelics. Guys, I never thought I'd speak about that moment again, but I'm looking forward to hearing what you guys think about it and sharing with us what your experiences are or opinions are on psychedelics as well from a mental health perspective there are several benefits but i'll let you guys make the decision once you listen it was a great conversation um, and i can't wait to get into this but as ever rate review and subscribe send the show far and wide and please share on instagram or wherever you share most You may think it doesn't make a difference, but it really does. It definitely does. Every review, every share, every comment, I see as much as I can. And I try to interact as much as I can. So, yeah, it would be very, very... um, I'll be very grateful for you guys just to share as much as you can. That's all I could ask for you. So, James... It's time to talk. Let's get into it. All right. Welcome, James. It's time to talk. How are you doing? I'm very well. I'm uh, I'm a little bit ahead of you in the future. It's about yep. uh, 9 p.m. in Australia. I can see the sun shining through your window. So, uh, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm very good, mate. It's 9 p.m. in Australia. It's 10 a.m. here. Tell me what it's like down there. What is it like down in um, Australia at the minute? Do you know what? It's... Uh, you're very, we're very fortunate here. I think that mm. uh, what I've noticed is I could be wrong. I'll say, I love saying I could be wrong when I say something that could be incorrect, but 
there's an almost an element of how well people are adhering to COVID restrictions based on how much they like their government. And New, <laughs> New Zealand yes. are at the top. New Zealand's prime minister is an absolute boss. They yeah. they eliminated it so early on. Then mm-hmm. Australia, they've got a lot of respect for the powers that be, and they've got people in charge of the states. It's like an interstate competition. And then when you look at America and the United Kingdom, I think where mm-hmm. there's a lack of good leadership, we're starting to see uh, poor adherence. And I'm sure there are lots of other factors, but as far as this country, we're we're very good. Pubs have been open for a while. Gyms have been open for a while. Uh, so I'm feeling very, uh, I'll say, blessed to be in such a, a good part of the world. Yeah. I think anywhere where there's sunshine is great um, for, for this kind of stuff, I guess. Is it? Is it like, it, I feel like what the, the image we've been given of Australia is that it's just perpetually sunny. <laughs> yeah. And, and Sydney is quite far down south uh, on the East Coast. And you, you get a proper winter. So the winter here will get down to like six degrees. It feels colder than the UK here because their heating systems are shite because it's only cold for a couple of months a year. So people would right. like skip, skip on it. And um, so I feel <laughs> the cold more in Sydney. I complain about the cold more in Sydney than I do in the UK. But So you get proper seasons. But one of the things that I've really appreciated, I'm 31 now, I came here at 27, is that even when it's cold, the skies are always blue. And it's it's such an impact on my mood. I never realized. And mm. I've probably started saying more hippie things in the last few years since living in Australia. Blue skies are really big for my mood. Um, and like you say about the weather, it's very it's very strange that when you have good weather and you have a beach and you have the ability to jump in the ocean, even when it's freezing, suddenly the, the constructs of your life around that don't need to be too complex because you always have that. And uh, living in Bondi, which is one of the most sought after kind of areas in the world, is a lot cheaper than London. And mm. I've got the sea, a 20 minute walk down the road. I've got coastals that are open even throughout the the darkest days of the pandemic. And I feel for general general mood, this place is like a utopia. And when I come back to London now, I feel very suffocated. Mm. How often do you come back? So I used to come back for uh, maybe six months, six months. Then one year I did uh, like four months. Um, of course, trying to do my maths now, four months, eight months. And mm-hmm. I was supposed to go to America in April and, and come back in May. Um, mm-hmm. my family live in Windsor and so I, I usually like doing a split so I could do summer to summer but it is very difficult and I've, I made the decision to stay in Australia and even my parents were like yeah stay there you're not in lockdown yeah. son so yeah. Uh, yeah that's really interesting because I've always wanted to just skip out of the country I mean I, I, I used to travel quite a lot through university my university times um, and looking at it now I haven't really been away properly because I used to, whenever I used to go away, I used to go away for a minimum of four months at a time. So it was just, so that was kind of what I considered holidays were to be long stays. And it wasn't until I came back and started working uh, full time as a reporter at the time that it was just like, you know, that all of that was taken away because I was thinking, oh no, like I can't just go away for four months because obviously you've got responsibilities back here. This is, this is the exact thing that I did. And I, I thought I was broken for many years. And I worked in the corporate world for a bit. Then one day just handed in my resignation and went to New Zealand for six months to play rugby. I worked on a farm. I worked in uh, I worked for a sheep shearer. 
Then I came back and everyone was like, you've got to get a proper job. So I worked in recruitment. Mm -hmm. And then before you know it, I'm off again to Southeast Asia and I was there for six yeah. months. And I love that. I love that kind of like anarchy, work for a bit, go away for a bit. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that there was maybe stigma. I'm not sure if you had like peers or parents or friends. Oh, you got to come home now. You got to get a proper job. Yeah, absolutely. It was that I was teaching English in the Indian Ocean and I was working 12 hours a week. I was on a hammock most of the time. <laughs> and um, I got the email, well, email got a WhatsApp from my dad. He's just like, all right, time for like <laughs> a real job now, um, got a life to begin. And I was like, oh, okay. And that's when I ended up in journalism. But when you kind of just, when you made that transition from going into recruitment, and then going off to Southeast Asia, like what were, what, what were the kind of, um, what was that transition period like for you? Because stepping out of security and into something completely unknown. I felt very suffocated. And mm. the, the worst part about it was I'd be sat there in my suit and I'd be looking around and no one else was suffocated. And I was like, mm. and I, I thought I was broken to the point that I was like, why are, the, why are these people so happy to sit here from nine till five? I was like, my work does not take up this amount of time. I'm not incentivized to get it all done. We're all here filling time. No one around me is working that hard, but we're all pretending yeah. we are. None of my sales figures are that hard to get. Why am I getting call stats? Like, and I, I just hated it. And I just mm. thought that's what life was. I thought that you go to work, you hate your job, you moan about it when you're making a coffee that you don't need. And then you go to rugby training in the evening and repeat. And mm. it was almost like little midlife crises. Crises might be the better plural <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and and in hindsight the second I got away uh you know I'd, I'd sell my car or you know I'd dip into savings or whatever it was I feel instantly better and I and it, when you do go traveling I'm sure you had the same you you meet people that are like-minded and you sit there on the hammock and you go the whole world's fucking crazy yep yep you do feel broken and I think that that is a that's a that's a perfect um, description of the feeling because you feel like if everybody around you is operating on a sense of normality and you're here <laughs> like what is going on I don't think that this is something that is normal for me anyway I don't think this is normal what you're then trying to fit in and it just becomes very difficult to continue so why Southeast Asia that's very yeah. far so from, from like from Windsor, <laughs> you know, you watch the beach with Leonardo DiCaprio. I was like, I want to go to Thailand. I want to do this. Oh yeah. Uh, and, and like for me, there was always a part of me that you know, living off fifteen pounds a day and just exploring stuff. And I've always had this. Uh, weird, this is a story that I've never actually told anyone. That there's a girl in my local area who mm -hmm. uh, died of cancer at 24, and she went to a school that a lot of my friends went to, and she just bought a house and one of her friends was telling me that she hadn't gone on holiday for two years because she was saving for this house. And it meant a lot to her that she could, you know, buy this house and uh, afford it. And I thought it was so sad that someone hadn't lived their life in pursuit of doing the right thing, buying a house. And then she never had the time to actually live in it. And I heard about that story when I was in my early 20s and I was like, why are people doing this? There's there's this blueprint that people are following. And of course, she's an exception to the rule. But surely we should be prioritizing the wild stuff in our 20s and not 
you know, settling down, there's, there's this blueprint that exists. And I write about this in the book that everyone's following. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're 18, you either go to uni or you, do, or you get a job. Cool. It's like a little uh, diagram that you only have two options, yes or no. Then you finish university. Did you get did you get a good grade, yes or no? Right, go into the professional world. You know, you must get a nine to a five. And there's no creativity. There's no tangents where they say, what do you love doing? Can you make money from that? And mm. we're made to feel like we have to have really successful businesses. But one thing that I got from Southeast Asia was if you can make 50 pounds a day in the UK, you can, you can survive. And even better, that if you can make 50 pounds a day from a business, you could live like a king for that abroad. Mm, mm, yeah, it's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. And I think that there's also the understanding that there's a, there's a whole world outside of here. Um, and you, you're right about, you know, kind of like connecting with other people's experiences too. You know, when you look at what people, uh, you know, the, the things that people are working towards and what they're working for are not always kind of, the, the realities of it aren't always um, ideal, you know, that everybody has these dreams and these things that they want to do. And, they, and it's like, okay, but by the time I get to 50, I can start doing X, Y, and Z. And you're just like, well, time isn't guaranteed or promised to anybody. And I think this is one of those years where we've seen that, that time is not promised to anybody. And imagine if you spent all your savings traveling last year, you'd be sat here in COVID with your PlayStation going, I've, I did the right thing. And I'm sure there are so many people that are traveling now, yeah. probably still in Bali, no an expat, you know, working in a local <laughs> cafe, buzzing. And all the people that did the right thing, you know, studied for a year or, you know, went to college or did a top up or whatever it is, are probably thinking I should have got out beforehand. And in my mind, I've always, I've not always thought, what if a viral disease takes over the world? But I always remind myself that whoever got a fatal brain tumor or that developed stage four cancer, the day they found out about that, they woke up thinking they were fine. They woke up thinking, ah, it's just another day in life. And then before you know it, it's, it's all gone. And uh, it's not a pessimistic attitude. It's almost like a prag- like pragmatic, like a realist attitude. Mm, it's true. It's true. Um, you mentioned something, you mentioned, you mentioned quite a bit um, in the kind of, in the work that you do uh, around priorities um, and in your current book, in your new book that's going to be out soon at the point of this recording, but it should be out by the time this episode goes out, um, not a life coach. Um, I just wanted to ask you just about the title because um, your first book is not a diet book and um, your second book is not a life coach and um, you're really emphasizing um, something there and it kind of and it pulls because you're just thinking, okay, so what is it? So what do you mean by not a life coach um, as somebody who coaches their, in, in their day-to-day? So uh, I, the truth be told, for the Not A Diet book, I'm sat with my editor, my strategy director of HarperCollins, and they've taken me to Hawksmoor uh, in uh, Tau, uh, yeah, London Bridge for a boozy lunch to celebrate. And we're smashed. Okay. I'm, I'm talking. There are shots of tequila <laughs> at the table. The whole restaurant's emptied out. And uh, there comes suddenly the, the salient point across the table. What are we going to call this book, James? Because it's not a diet book. And when I when I heard that, I was like, that's what we're going to call it. I was pissed. I was like, it, it's not. It's, it's not a diet book. It's a general advice book. It's a bullshit busting book. It's not like, hey, do this. So then uh, originally uh, I started writing this book, calling it book two. That was it, book two. And they were like, not a, it's almost a self-help book, but it's not a self-help book. 
And then I was like, let's call it not a life coach because that's not what I'm trying to do. I don't want to stand here and be like, you know, PT rebrands as life coach. I want to be a PT that has a precursor to my original work because I'm, you know, if someone is struggling with their weights, there are a lot of complexities at play, but often a lot of people don't realize that if you have an unhappy life, removing food makes your life worse. You know, if, if you've got an unfulfilled job and a relationship you're not happy in, the reason you're in the fridge, and this isn't to say all overweight people are, you know, uh, unhappy, but they take, I take pleasure from food. If you just say less of that, you make someone's life worse. So the precursors for everything, and I've had this conversation so many times in gyms before, you know, how's your job? Oh, it's stressing me out. I fucking hate it. You know, I can't sleep at night. How's your relationship? Oh, my partner's not supportive. I've been with them three years. And then I was like, well, hold on, before we even look at the dieting, there's so many conversations, I'm like, you should really get a new job. What shall I do? You know, oh, but that doesn't pay as well. If it may not pay as well, but you won't be stressed and unhappy. You know, it, there's going to be the pain point of breaking up with your partner. But at least you'll go home and have a, have a supportive environment. And mm. I didn't want to step out my lane, I suppose. That's that's the thing with the whole idea of the title of the book, to be like, hey, I'm, I'm not pretending to be Tony Robbins. I'm not there going to get you chanting in a crowd. Um, yeah. and yeah, the, now we're here. Yeah. It's, in, you know, the position that you have as a personal trainer does qualify in a way, not qualify, does combine in a way, therapist, life coach, counselor, career advisor, Oprah, <laughs> because you do, you have to deal with a myriad of, uh, of personalities and experiences that will help them then achieve their goals as well. And when it comes to not a life coach, what outside of the fitness side of, of things, what kind of things are you like hoping to be addressing um, through, through this? So what I've, what I've done uh, for years before this is I love finding trees, a metaphorical tree, someone's current belief system, and I love shaking the fuck out of it and seeing who's left. Like, you know, I come in with, <laughs> fuck the ketogenic diet is shit, your breath stinks, you're fucking boring, you go to a barbecue and you can't have a bun with your burger, and all these people fall out like, oh my God, that's exactly how I feel. And the people left to the branch are the ones that go, oh, I love keto, I saved my life, and I'm like, all right, fuck it, throw that branch on the fire. And then I go to like, I go to the vegan branch. And again, when I shake the vegan tree, all the real ethical vegans just think I'm a prick, but they're not the ones I'm trying to trying to work with. Then some go, yeah, I did watch a documentary. I've felt a bit ill since I went vegan. You know, And I found all these trees and I've shaken them. And now this book's given me the opportunity to delve into some like mortgages, like saying, I don't think that you need to have a mortgage. And I'm sure a lot of people bought houses before covid before the economic downturn, before being furloughed, everyone's like, it's the best investment ever. They're now without a job, living off the state with the biggest debt of their life. And I appreciate that long-term, it pays back a lot of, it could pay back a good amount of money. But I don't want to have to deal with someone, if the boiler goes, I don't want that stress. If my tenants are having house parties, I don't want to deal with that stress. And like I said, it's not to shake the tree and expect everyone to fall out. I just want to talk to the people that do fall out. And, you know, imagine someone sat down in London, reads the book, finishes, and they go, their life is exactly the same, but they feel a lot better. They go, do you know what? I don't want a house. I'm 35. You know, I don't, I'm quite happy not having kids and no one's going to take that away from me. And there's so many stigmas 
and it, they come from kind places from our parents and things like that we need to be the architects of how our life look and I feel like unless I shake these branches, people are going to fall into what their life should look like and not what their life wants to look like. I absolutely agree. And, and I think that I've been shaking that mortgage tree for a while. And, you know, as you mentioned, I'm kind of, I'm edging towards 30, I'm 28. Um, by the end of the year, I'll be 29. And then 30 is soon approaching very quickly. And, um, and it's those questions of, okay, so are you going to have kids? Are you going to have a mortgage? Like, what are you doing? And I think it's all of... And you saying this, again, this is why I love having these conversations because it reaffirms the conversations I'm having with myself. And those conversations around mortgages and, um, and the like, these are societal pressures that come with, you know, the perceived pressures that come with age. And what you should be, what you should be doing by a particular time, what you should be doing, and, you know, and it's also understanding that that's not for everybody. So, how did you come to that point where you realised that some of these things just weren't for you? You know, because a lot of the time, sorry to just go on just a little bit more, but a lot of the time we are. It's hard because we are comparing ourselves to a lot of people. And we don't necessarily know how to trust what we believe and what we think. So how did you manage to get to that stage where you could trust what you think and trust what you believe? And what do you think about mortgages and kids and all those things, if you don't mind me asking? No, no. So like, um, it's, kind of, it's kind of a strange one. Uh, I, had a, I had a psychedelic experience that got me to go to Australia, right? And I've, I've never wanted to go to Australia until I was 27, did a psychedelic substance at a festival and I couldn't talk for a bit. And I came around the other side and I was like, I'm going to Oz. And I didn't have much savings. So I flew via Bali. Uh, I was buzzing that I could lay on three seats in economy. I took a North Face to Holdall. And when I, when I traveled the East Coast, I was in hostels the whole way down. And I was buzzing and I was 27. My friends are having mm. kids, buying cars, all of that. I'm in a hostel yeah. and I'm, I'm lying to the reception saying I sleepwalk. And if they put me in a top bunk, they could be responsible for a death. That's that's me four years ago, right? <laughs> just making up making up shit when I'm backpacking. And um, when I got to Sydney, like you never see a miserable backpacker, right? And the, first of all, I see that, and I was happy as shit. I had ten online clients that paid me like fifty quid a week, so I'm making pretty decent money to to gallivant around. And I was like, oh, I'll get onto living, I'll get onto a serious life soon enough, and. Mm-hmm. I've been reinforced over the last few years. I often sit in the same cafe in uh, Bondi and I can see the seat and uh, coffee is £2.55. And there are some youngsters that work in there and they're happy in there. And some of them have worked there for two years in as baristas mm-hmm. making coffee. And people come up to me when I'm in there and they go, James, oh, mate, you're doing so well. You know, you're being so... And I'm like, look at these fucking baristas, right? They're happy. They come to work at six in the morning they're working with their friends. They serve people good coffee, which no one in the UK does because the coffee is shocking and shite. They serve people good coffee, almond croissants. They stroke dogs when they come in. And at 3 p.m., they close up shop. They have a smile on their face. They put the tables away and they probably go home. They take a nap. They get a six pack of beers. They go to the sunset and they sit on the grassy knoll. They might smoke a joint. They might sit with their friends. They might have a bottle of wine. 
And guess what? They'll probably get an early night and do the same day again tomorrow. And I've been watching these people for years thinking, we, humanity, have so much to learn from a happy barista. And that that guy could, like the girls that are in there, they could be working there till they're 40, till they're 50, through to whatever. And I'm like, you're winning? You're literally winning. People are like looking at me. I'm like, I've got to go home for a book tour, which I'm really looking forward to doing. But I wouldn't mind just serving coffees to people and living the the, the good life. And yeah, it, it's seeing that and in, and coming back to the UK, the UK that doesn't exist. Everything's a bit more of a rat race. And you know, if you were to work in Costa and go, I'd really like making coffees, they go, Ah, oh, cousin James is a bit simple. <laughs> That's what I would say. Yeah, <laughs> that is super interesting. And I think that, and I. It's something that you, it's really funny that you kind of touch on that because even when when I look around, so with this lockdown, right, and with all that's going on with COVID and stuff, just having to not be in the race because so I've been working, I've been self employed for like a year now, or just over a year, almost two, and coming taking myself out of a very busy career in journalism where everything was fast, so it was getting to getting on the train getting into work kind of trying to find all the stories write all the stories before the end of the day's deadline and then even then working over and then trying to get back home in time for what it's like all of the everything is trying to get somewhere in time and nothing was as slow as what I understood slowness and life to be when I was before I you know at that point where I was told get a real job get a you know do all that stuff life was slow life was peaceful life I could had I had time to think write, and do all the things I wanted to do so very interesting about what you're saying at that but so but what do you feel about kind of the where you're at with regards to like you know you know responsibilities for your age or responsibilities for kind of like where you're at and the perceptions that people then have how do you deal with those kind of um those challenges in the mind I'm very fortunate because now I can use kind of my business position where, uh, you know, people go, oh, you haven't bought a house, oh, but he must be able to soon. I, it, I, it really doesn't cross my mind and it, it's mm. not something that is going to make me happy. It's not some go, oh, you know, you should invest your money. But this is, this is a weird thing. I was, I was doing a, an interview before this and people talk about wise, they talk about wise investments and they go, oh, you could buy a house, you could make money. When I was writing my first book, I was unhappy in London. I was living in Fulham and I fucking hated my housemates. They were the most annoying pricks. They were so messy and it, it was grating on me to the point that it was, it was stealing my energy. So I was like, fuck this. I called my dad. Dad, can you come pick me up? I went home and I flew to Barcelona on my own. And right, I was looking, I, I was looking at hotels and uh, a mate of mine just goes, stay in the W. I went, mate, it's 600 pounds a night. And he went, stay there just stay stay there for 10 days i was like mate what? i was like you fucking kidding me i was like i can't afford this he, and he goes you got the book to write piss off he's like we'll find a way to expense it on the business so i flew i went to the w i got there and i sat there and i, I found this little sofa in reception and i had a little waiter who kept coming over fizzy water black coffees and i was writing and i was happy and i'd dip in the pool i'd watch the sunset i took i took like my skateboard i skateboard up and down barcelona and I was producing the best quality writing. My editor was like, James, this is amazing. And looking back now, making the, what is on paper the worst investment ever helped me produce the best work. 
And now I can't help but think that there are people out there that say, oh, you need to get a house, whatever. You could go backpacking and spend all your money traveling Eastern Europe. You could, this is again, it's like a little bit of dreamland, but I still honestly believe this. You could get drunk in a bar one night and chat to someone and come up with a business idea, a really random business idea. It could end up getting traction and you could end up making millions from it. And like mm. people, people are so closed off to that. They think that could never happen. And we never put ourselves out there to do that. We never, you know, people go, oh, you know, I've got enough for a mortgage. And on the other hand, they go, oh, I could go traveling for a year. They think traveling for a year is going to waste it. You don't know who you're going to meet. You don't know what you're going to see. You don't know. You could stand there one day and go, there is a gap in the market for this. And I'm going to, I'm going to take it on. And I think it's a real shame that people don't. And the worst case scenario is that, yes, you spend enough money for a deposit on a year traveling, but no one ever I haven't met many people on their deathbed, so this isn't objectively true. I don't see many people laying there going, I'm so glad I had 15 houses. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do think that we have this culture of more um, where we kind of need to have all of the houses because then that is the status in which we can be seen to be important or any, or something, you know? Um, and I'm just very much like, minimalism is the way <laughs> forward because uh, I think that that's an in- I think I feel like it gives me a lot more breathing space you know just to have not to not necessarily to have less but to have more quality things around me and also just the the fact that if you're not happy with it or you know could you know or, and, and again like let's say something bad happens to the area you know in the next five years the area which you bought a house in suddenly they put up apartments or or whatever it is there's always so many things outside of our control i always said to someone Mm. covid although it's pretty shit has got a very low fatality rate imagine in three years time if another viral disease wipes out two-thirds of the population not only would it be terrible property prices would fucking plummet and you'd be left there having to pay a mortgage on a property that and again that's worst case scenario someone goes oh you're picking the narrative but again it's It's just throwing stuff out and you will be, and people go, renting's wasted money. It's not. The bed gives you the same night's sleep. The shower is still a lovely, warm feeling in the morning. It's not like, oh, yeah. cause you, uh, mate, cause you're renting, you can only use the shower for two minutes. It's bullshit. And, you know, and, and again, the ownership of a property is just the belief system. It's mm-hmm. you're, you're paying, you're putting thousands of pounds down on the line to have a change in beliefs. Yeah. You're right. You're right. What I was going to um, kind of go on to was just kind of where you began, in a sense. So we all know that, we all know you're in, okay, actually, before I even get there, actually, we all know that you're in Australia. I want to know about these psychedelics, because I'm all about this third eye opening. <laughs> I want to know about how, what that was like, and um, if you can tell me that story, because I think that's super interesting. Do you know what, like, uh, I reckon in five years' time, you know the, the what happens cannabis? It was like, this yeah. is illegal. We're going to lock you up in jail for having a eight, like an eighth on you, whatever. Five years later, it remained open during COVID. In America, the dispensaries remained open. It's now considered essential. Uh, I reckon psychedelics, and I'm confident about this, and I've taken a lot of stick for it. I reckon psychotherapy and psychedelics to help people with mental health disorders and also people without, it's, it's going to happen. There's, there's no way it, it quite literally can't. And um, I've actually had uh it magic mushrooms for me uh have really helped me think things through and interestingly they've helped me with my insecurities and i also spent one afternoon 
thinking through jiu-jitsu positions. It sound really, sounds really weird. Something happened in training and I spent half an hour thinking about it and I, I felt like I came away a better athlete. And uh, Magic Mushrooms was probably like my go-to, but mm. recently DMT. And have you, have you ever done DMT? No, no, I haven't. It's, uh, it's wild, but it's... Yeah. The, the, the strangest thing, right, and people can't understand this, is what? It, it's five minutes. Oh, okay. And it slows time down, I imagine. So first of all, um, I was at a house party and someone was like, oh, do you want to smoke some DMT? And all I remember is everyone looking like plastic dolls and that's all I remember. And I was like, oh, and someone said to me, don't do it drunk. So me and some housemates uh, ended up getting it. You put it into like a, almost like a, a joint and smoking it, but it feels a bit dirty doing it like and doesn't smell very nice and funnily enough i spoke about it on a podcast and a guy came up to me in a bar in bondi and he goes you need to smoke it in a vape and i was like okay he goes wow okay he goes i'm gonna bring you some i'm gonna incriminate myself here. i'm gonna bring you some so let me know what you think so i randomly had this guy come drop some round. i was like this could be anything this could be quite literally you know, anthrax for all, for all I know, mm. he could be he could be one of the vegans that was unhappy with me. And um, yeah. I sat on my balcony, took three tokes, and I was gone for five minutes. I put on London Grammar, Hey Now. And I've never felt so connected to the universe in my life. And mm. I, I was like 50 shades of every emotion I've ever felt. And it sounds weird. I conjured, I conjured emotions that I didn't think existed anymore. And it gave me some real clarity. And this is the thing. And I'm, I'm a massive advocate of therapy, journal, journalist, like journalism, like where people write down what they're thinking, like journaling, sorry, um, yeah. and all of these things. But you will never, ever take advice as highly regarded as the advice and the questions that you ask yourself. Mm. And, mm. and I came out of it and... My friend said to me, they're like, oh, so where are you at? And I was like, I'm not, I said, I'm not done thinking about it. And it took me weeks to really think through what I'd asked myself. And, uh, and it, it's crazy. Like, uh, for me, I think that when we need answers, they're a great place to go to. And sometimes I think it's a great place to go for answers to questions you haven't thought of yet. Mm -hmm. For real. I remember when I was in my year abroad, I, we, and a few friends, we took some, shrooms but it was very much like i had no idea what I, what to expect um all i know is that i started seeing sounds and hearing colors and for some reason i was focused on one particular color on a wall and it was just and i was just looking at that <laughs> for a long time but as you say it feels like a long time it's probably it was probably only two minutes of my life but it felt but that kind of but what i understood from that experience was that was when people start talking about mindfulness and focus that is what i understand it to be because to be solely focused on one thing and you know a lot of the time a lot of people who have taken some of these um whether it be cannabis or whatever they usually go into a space where they can then think creatively or produce. I don't know if you remember Heroes. Do you remember Heroes? That the yeah. TV show. Yeah. And the guy, yeah. he used to paint the future, when he, but only he could only do it when he was high. 
with heroin. So that was the crutch that he had. And it was yeah. really, and I, and I remember watching that and I used to be like, why is he only doing that? But like, as I was obviously coming up to this conversation now, it's a bit, you understand it unlocks a particular part of you, a particular consciousness that is not, that is kind of blocked by us in our everyday consciousness, you know? And I think that it, I 100% agree. And I've never challenged myself on certain elements quite so much. And uh, one of them, I remember when I was mid-trip and I was seeing it, I was thinking about how I was going to tell my friends about it. And then my brain started going, why does everything you have to do be portrayed? Why do you story everything? Why do you put everything onto social media? Why don't you have any of the experiences to yourself? And then mm-hmm. I was starting to ask myself, am I starving my own mind of enjoying experiences to myself because I'm too busy trying to share them with other people? And like, mm-hmm. I, no one's ever come to me and said that before. And because it was me, I was listening and I was like, do you know what? I'm going to start having more experiences to myself. I'm going to start listening to music when I walk. I'm going to put my phone away. I'm, you know, I'm going to watch a sunset with no distractions or whatever it is. And start to, you know, not not feel obliged to make every experience about how I portray it to other people. And these little things, they they do have huge positive effects. And I'm actually yet to ever have a negative experience with psychedelics uh, at all. And I think the what one thing I hate is that people categorize everything as drugs. Like, oh, drugs are bad. And I'm like, well, some save lives, some unfortunately end them some cause deterioration of life, but others, I do think, like you say, connect people with a higher level. And I used to be actually quite ignorant to religions. And ever since doing psychedelics, I understand a lot more about the connection people have. And I understand about what it can do for them. And um, I now feel like I'm less ignorant to people's beliefs and less ignorant to people's standpoint on something. Because if someone having a higher being or a higher power or a God of their kind can give them 10% of what I experienced on psychedelics, I think they should absolutely do that whenever they feel the need. Mm. I was watching, um, and you might be interested in this. I don't know if you've seen it, actually. Um, let me know. Uh, there's a show, there's a series on Netflix called Unwell. And um, it's like five episodes so far, but I feel like on the third episode, there's an episode called Ayahuasca. Ayahuasca. And it's a plant that is found in Peru. And they use that plant to get to, it's a psychedelic. And that's what, this is what kind of like came to my, come to my mind when you started speaking about it. But it's a psychedelic that is used to purge the traumas that you that are, that are deep seated. I think somebody on the show, they um, on the documentary, they um, expressed it as a as ten years worth of therapy in in one session, and um, and in like you know in Peru, like you, that a lot of people go there, they take this drink. It's a it's a it's a it's a vine. Um, they take it, they drink it, and it's a it's a whole spiritual process. Like you 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 really go into a state of like high altered consciousness um there were some horror stories and there were some like really good stories and there was a science to back it up and all this stuff um and i think that i was thinking like what do you think about the future of psychedelics i don't really know this is no way near what, what i was going to speak to you about but what do you think about the future of psychedelics because and how it kind of matches with um with science now so i think that like, could match with science sorry 
What's interesting is how many uh, really, like Mike Tyson, he calls uh, DMT the toad, and he's a changed man since doing it. And he took a MMA athlete, Henry Kajudo, I think his name is. I might have his surname wrong. And went to get him to do the experience. And Joe Rogan asked him about it. And he said he unlocked another level of the relationship he had with his mum. And he, I, I oh. might have this story wrong, but he, he's wondered why he's always had like a, a slight issue. And he goes, he realized that he was the youngest in his family of like six or seven siblings. And then he had two younger sisters born. And he said that he was then no longer the younger child that had the most attention. And he feels that all of his efforts in an MMA and a wrestling capacity and all the success he had through winning championships and wrestling medals and Olympics and all that was to win back his, his mother's affection from having two younger sisters. And wow. he was like, and it all made sense to him once he had that. And he was like, it's helped me be a better son to my mother. And like to hear someone get that level of kind of, you know, understanding of their own situation, I think is, is, is powerful. And we're in a world where if a placebo works, it still works. So if someone comes to you, no matter what, objectively speaking, you know, the brain surgeons may go, oh, you killed some brain cells, you know, you blah, blah, blah. If someone comes back and goes, my life has been altered in a positive sense, whether it, you know, if someone feels that way, that's, that's strong. And clinical studies of MDMA being used for PTSD, these are all pointing in the same direction. And the, the stigma, I think, is being broken down with uh, Oregon have now delegalized, uh, no, legalized all, all narcotics to, I don't think you can deal them, but, and I think this is going to continue, continue to move. And I think that if people need to put their, their, their business hats on, if you can legalize something, you can tax it. If you tax it, you can make money. If you can make enough money to then some people, unfortunately, are going to have adverse effects. Some people are going to overdose on MDMA. Some people are going to abuse it. But people do that with alcohol and cigarettes as it is. Then you can end and put drug dealers out of business, which is a billion pound. Like, I think London cocaine scene is about five billion pounds a year. Wow. And I'm pretty sure I could be wrong. The Algerians or, uh, are running the show. And... It's not a pretty scene. You know, you've got stabbings, you've got killings, you've got people stepping on each other's territory. If Boris, which he probably won't, just step forward and go, we're going to legalize substance, blah, blah, blah. And someone said to me the other day, they go, oh, can you imagine? I said, mate, it would be exactly the same because everyone's snorting coke in the toilets. If they did it at the bar or in the desk or at their table in Weatherspoons, the conversations would be the same. The narrative would be the same. The beers they drank would be the same. Nothing would change apart from where they're doing it. And it, it's mm-hmm. like, it's the elephant in the room, isn't it? That people are doing yeah, coke yeah. on nights out at MD and people coming into clubs with their eyes like saucers. It's happening yeah. anyway. <laughs> and the only thing yeah. is, you know, people are not going to waste their condom by hiding drugs up their bum. That's pretty much the only thing that's going to change. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that is something to, to consider because especially with what you said about the crime, the crime issue um, and how we kind of perceive crime. Because I think that, um, I guess, once there's regulation, you can then monitor how it's then dispersed. But I guess, but then, you know, I don't want, when there's, don't want it to be too much, like, room for tampering sometimes as well. But who knows? Who knows? I don't know what to expect. But the, the thing is, is, like, a lot of science is being backed up, is backing up a lot of the use of these 
these drugs as well. So it's actually kind of, it's very interesting to see where we're at with it now. Um, and I, I, I'm curious to see what we're going to be saying in 2030, you know, when it comes to a lot of these drugs. Um, it's in, and it's like interesting. The way, our, the way our attitudes toward it. Mark Manson says that the solutions to a lot of things can often be worse. And he says that, I saw a blog that he did where he goes, a nuclear power plant erupted in Japan. So they shut down all their nuclear plants, which meant their coal usage went through the roof. And it meant the environmental disaster from burning so much coal and what it did to surrounding habitats and uh, deforestation, all this kind of stuff, was way worse than the original nuclear power plant that had a leak. Mm. And he goes, by having this war on drugs and going to war just means that profits are higher for the cartels. There are more deaths incurred. There's more corruption. The cartel would not be high up in legal systems and police systems to corrupt if it was illegal. And it's almost that through trying to solve problems, we've made them worse. And the extremes that people will go to to smuggle stuff illegally is, you know, people are being being made to swallow pellets and pellets and pellets and dipped in oil to, you know, get things into the country. Not only could we, from a business standpoint, but from an ethical standpoint, we could get fair trade agreements. Because if you buy your coffee that comes from, you know, Colombia or, or Peru or South America, there's fair trade agreements that people get paid the right amount through the whole process and that the people at the other end are getting, you know, proper salaries and jobs. And unfortunately, the more naivety we have towards this as, a, as an issue, mm. there are, there's going to be blood on everyone's hands anyway. So it's mm. something that I think that people do need to take into consideration. Like you say, 2030, I think we're going to see a big U-turn with it. Mm. For real. That was a very healthy tangent. I really like that. Um, so I wanted to ask about kind of your beginnings and um, I'm very big on, I have a very complex relationship with food itself. Like I go back and forth with what I believe is good and what I believe is bad. I go, I try to be kind to myself in that if I'm eating something trash, I'm like, I can't rip myself to shreds for doing it, but I'm just in that mood to have X, Y, and Z. Um, when it comes to my training, um, obviously we're in lockdown, so all the gyms are closed, which was irritating. It's cold outside. Nobody wants to train outside because we used to do that in the summer. It's cold now. But I say all that to say that even when I'm training, um, I it, the, the mindset to get into training was hindered by the fact that if I'm not eating correctly, the training kind of doesn't make much, doesn't give me, doesn't it doesn't do much in the same like I can train obviously for the mental health aspects and for the, just get your just to get into the body and to get moving but if I'm not eating correctly it doesn't really it doesn't the body it won't show any of the effect any of the um the any of the labor any of the benefits of your labor and whatnot so with regards to male body image and kind of how we perceive ourselves and where we come where we can arrive to a point of self-compassion and self-kindness with how we look and how we feel about our bodies in comparison to a lot of the things we see on things like men's health or, um, you know, on TV, on Instagram and all this stuff. Before we get to there, I wanted to see where were you at before you are where you are now. We're in a very, you know, we're in a, we're in a time where image is everything. 
Yeah, when I was a kid, I was overweight. Like, I wasn't massive, but I was fat. And I'd never got picked at, for the sports teams. And, you know, like, you, I remember when you pick teams at football at school, I was always last. No one wanted me on their team. Mm-hmm. I was a fat kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> then, so, and I remember, like, being at school and speaking to dinner ladies and being like, is this fattening? Is this fattening? And they didn't know. And like, oh, it's just mm-hmm. burger and chips. Like, eat your, get your tray and piss off. Coming home, mum, dad's. <laughs> Why am I overweight? They're like, oh, grow out of it. You know, they're loving parents. I've, I have a fantastic relationship with my family, fantastic relationship uh, growing up. My mum just quite simply loved me and never wanted me to go hungry. She's from a different generation. And I've never had a pop at them for it. It's just the generation that I grew up in. And I am a pig. I am a pig. I was training. Uh, I had a jiu-jitsu competition this weekend. And my friends were like, mate, between matches, they were like, you were like a little pig like a truffle pig going around sniffing out sweets. Yeah, different. I was like, whose bag's this? Like getting whatever it was. And, uh, <laughs> so I, I love food. I've always loved food. My mum says as a baby, she used to have to, like on a plane, she'd give me a, a baguette of bread and she would just say, you'd chew that for hours. You'd be quiet, silent, nibbling away. Um, got into rug- <laughs> rugby at 14 and rugby was a, a real amazing thing for me for the next 15 years because you can have a bit of timber and still be considered an athlete. And in rugby, not having a six-pack, you know, as long as I was fit, I could run around the field, make my tackles, jump in lineouts, fine. And rugby was always my saviour. And even as a PT, if I had like a little bit of timber, they would say, oh, my PT's a rugby player, he plays semi-pro or whatever. And that that was great. And I remember when Facebook came along and then Instagram was really uh, where it started. I went through like the fitness, you know, really wanting to get fit, get buff. And the inadequacy started, the insecurity started. Uh, I was then tempted into anabolic steroids in my young 20s. And I openly admit that I did two or three cycles of anabolics. And I was was injecting myself with testosterone, trying to fit in and be accepted. And funnily enough, I got big and I got muscular and I looked exactly like the people who were telling me they were natural. And I came to realize that all of the people who I looked up to and thought they were in such good shape for their knowledge were just on gear. And... I had a lot of, I I trained on the gym floor for four years before I went online. So between the ages of 24 and 28, I was on, I was servicing sessions all day, every day. And I went through loads of ups and downs. I I never wore a t-shirt that wasn't black. Always to this day, like I still wear black tees now because I'm still a little bit insecure about the shape I'm in. Mm. It takes effort and it, it takes a fuck you to the system. And, you know, it, it's one of those things where even now I'm still in a constant battle about it, but you manage it better. And, you know, there's never been a time that I've come to think of it that anyone's ever, the girls that I've been with, they've never gone, oh, you need to lose weight. And actually, when I get lean, the girls I see, they're like, oh, you're getting, you're getting too skinny now. And I'm like, shut up, I haven't even got abs. They're like, no, no, no. They, they, they're like, we like a bit of meat on the bones. And mm. even little things that when I start getting lean, I start critiquing myself more, weighing myself more, looking in the mirror, and it turns them off. They're like, oh, you're being fucking narcissistic. And I'm like, I am, because I haven't been this lean in Mm. six months. And for me, the last few years, I've really enjoyed vocalizing my normal physique when I'm out of shape and wearing Speedos to the beach. Like, everyone's so worried about how they look. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to grow a mustache get big Oakley sunglasses and my speedos to the beach because ultimately if I'm fit and healthy and I feel good and someone out there that I'm seeing or dating finds me sexually attractive 
what else do I need? Why am I, mm. why am I going hungry for the validation of people that probably don't like me and that I probably don't like? <laughs> How do you get to that? A lot it's, of people, because we're, we're, we're in a comparison culture. hundred percent. I think that for me, it's very simplistic. I say to people, imagine all these avenues that you have nutrition, training, you know, step count, whatever it is, protein target, there's a scale of optimal and suboptimal. The most optimal is actually fucking shit because you'd never get drunk. Mm -hmm. You'd never have late nights. You'd never go party in Ibiza. You'd be in bed at 8 p.m. every night with a belly full of broccoli. It's shit. You want to come south of that a little bit. And really all you've got are these scales in front of you. Make them all the most optimal. That's it. Yeah. You know, And that might only be eating well five days a week or whatever it is. And once you have that, do that. And the end product you should love it because that end product, even if it's not as chiseled or as muscular or as fit as you would like it to be, that is a byproduct of you trying your hardest in every field. And what else do we have apart from that? Because if someone then wants to improve the end product, they're going to have to sacrifice the very scales they made optimal for themselves. And mm. touching back on a point that you made then about food is I love to say to people, there's no such thing as a bad food, just a bad diet. And I almost look at foods as if we're getting a good deal or a bad deal. Now, if I eat broccoli and steak, my, actually, no, I say broccoli and chicken, my nutrients are quite high, my calories are very low. So from a fat loss perspective, I'm getting a good deal. From a happiness perspective, I'm not. But if I then look at a quarter pounder burger from McDonald's, my happiness is very high. But the nutrient content is very low. And for the amount of calories I'm getting, it's a pretty bad deal. So all we have to do is make sure that we're getting a good deal with most things. And if I was to equate this into our normal daily life, we shop at Tesco's, Sainsbury's, whatever. We get good deals all week. Then at the weekend, we're happy to get absolutely robbed for a bottle of vodka when you're with your mates at a pretentious club. You're happy to be absolutely ripped off because it's not the norm. It's not a bottle yeah. of vodka every night with dinner, Belvedere or whatever they put sparklers on. And we have that balance in our life where through the week, you're like, you go to M&S Simply Food, you go, I'm not paying fucking £5.50 for a sandwich, piss off. You know, you go to Sainsbury's, mm -hmm. I love a chicken and bacon from there. And yeah. the majority of our life, we get good deals. But we're not going to Morrison's, we're not that bad. No, I'm joking. And then, <laughs> and, then, and then at the weekend, we allow ourselves to have these bad deals. And with food, it's the same. And someone goes, oh, it's a cheat meal. I go, it's not a cheat meal. Don't dress it up as a cheat meal. The calorie content mm -hmm. of that burger is the same, no matter what you call it. You could call it fucking Chuck Norris. It's still going to be a burger. So enjoy it and just appreciate that you're not getting a good deal and not to have too many of them. So you're saying in the sense that with regards to like the whole cheat meal and whatnot, if you're just keeping up with your calories, that the calories that you need for the goals that you want, that's kind of just, that, that, that is the, that's the method in which you go down rather than it being, I'm not going to eat for like the whole week and then I'm going to just cheat. <laughs> like with all of this stuff yeah and and the same with spending right we um spend a sensible amount during the week we have a blowout the weekend that's fine and that's yeah. completely acceptable and almost what we yeah. don't realize is that our daily practices are actually what enable us to have leftover money at the weekends and we just need to do that with with our food and my monday and my tuesdays are pretty bland i cook lean mints and put peas in it i put frozen peas on top of that and i enjoy it because i know if i do that on a monday and tuesday that i can make up for all the calories i have at the weekend and mm -hmm. you know sunday i'm always like let's do i always say let's do tapas 
when I say tapas, we fill the kitchen island with as much shit as possible, crisps and dip, yeah. avocado, guacamole, like all of this stuff. And like, it, it, it's balancing the books at the end of the day. And mm-hmm. I enjoy that process. And I don't think I should have any guilt when I eat food or when I have ice cream. Yeah. And when you're in control yeah. of that, like low, low calorie ice cream, I do a tub of that probably three or four nights a week. I sit there with my low calorie halo top or whatever it is. And I just enjoy it because it fits the puzzle. It allows you to then be a bit more compassionate to yourself, doesn't it? Really, because you don't because with, with with the guilt, it kind of takes you down a road that is very hard to come back from. Yeah, and Sunday night, uh, I, I competed in jiu-jitsu at the weekend, and I fucked up every single match. I went to McDonald's and I said, James, enjoy yourself because you're not going to be having this for a bit more. I, I said to myself. McDonald's for winners, James. Uh, but I still fucking I, I ate it anyway, and I was like, I said to myself, rather than sitting there and being guilty, I was like, get as much in as you can because next week you're going to eat really well. And mm-hmm. it, it's so nice just sitting there rewarding it. I was like, anyone else want another burger? I'm getting another. I'm not even hungry. And I like being transparent like that with my clients as well, and just being like, yeah, some normal human beings live. And yeah, even the people in the best shape don't stick to their diet. And it, mm. fitness people are the biggest fucking liars as well. When you, when I started going to fitness expos, they look nothing like that in real life. They're shorter yeah. a lot of the time. They're usually on cycle and they're off season. I see them. I'm like, fucking hell, you look, you look amazing in your pictures. You're not looking amazing yeah. in real life. So yeah, it's yeah. A, a lot of facades. Okay, I wanted to ask about that as well at some point, uh, as well, because, um, because when it comes to, I know that you are very, you're very straight talking. You're just like, you know what, you just, you're transparent. And I think that's important when it, when it comes to people's health. Because what we see on Instagram, social media, um, it doesn't, you know, people aren't telling us kind of how to do the things. It's pretty much telling us what to do, but they're not saying, you know, how to, how to do them or why or what the benefits of doing them are. It's, look at me, I'm doing these really hard exercises, but my body is already there, but I'm doing these really hard exercises. You can do it too, if you want to look like me. And then it's just this whole kind of like, and that's it. And that's all you get. You don't get anything else, but just the exercise and the body. And you're like, well, how do you do those things? I mean, it's the same for a lot of stuff, especially when people are talking about buying a house. They're like, oh, you just need to put a deposit down. Like, where do you get the money from? What kind of salary do you have? Like, is, is that, you know what I mean? Nobody is transparent. And I think that's why I, I like what you're saying because you're just very like, if I'm going to get a burger, I'm going to get a burger. Like, a burger's a burger is a burger. <laughs> you know? I fucking hate the fitness industry. And I watch some of them do their little workouts. Hey, swipe for a home workout. Like, No one needs what you're offering. It's poor marketing for a start. You're not offering anyone a solution. No one's like, fuck me. I saw a home workout today. Most personal trainers sell accountability. That's it at the end of the day. Like, that's what we're doing. Like, hey, pay me money and I'm going to make sure you come to the gym. And if you don't, it's going to cost you more. And Mm. it's one of those things. You see these workouts, then no one's walking around going, oh, fuck me. I need a workout for today. And like Mm. you say, they're parading a body that's unobtainable. I did a shoot with Men's Health. And in it, they got me to rip up the front cover and chuck it in the air. And he goes, we know you don't like men's health, but because you write a book, they still do a piece of me anyway. And he says, what do you reckon (laughs) we could do differently? I said, put obtainable physiques on your front cover. Ant Middleton got criticism for being on the front cover. He's SAS for not not being lean enough. 
He's climbed fucking Mount Everest. He's killed countless motherfuckers. And he's a bad motherfucker. And you're criticizing him for not being chiseled enough just because he didn't starve himself mm. long enough. And, yeah. you, you know, show me a rugby league player who's got three kids who still makes it to training four times a week, you know. Like, he, he might have a bit of timber, but he's he's doing his job. He's a good dad. He's a good rugby league player. Fucking excellent. Like, praise to, praise to these people. And like you say, yeah. they're like, oh, here's a workout for abs. There are no workout for abs. You're, you're actually in a competition of, uh, you know, it's actually a hungry competition. You've got all these fitness people. <laughs> Whoever's the hungriest out of you lot is going to win because you're going to be the leanest and get the, the endorsement from a company. And, you know, when they look at a cake, they're not thinking, oh, a cake, a bad deal. They're going, fuck me. If I eat that cake, I'm not going to get paid. And when, you know, some people, they get endorsed by a brand or, you know, and, and, and imagine this is a scary thought. It's a ticking time bomb when you're a fitness model because someone younger, better, and willing to do more is going to take your slot at some point, like no matter what. And that that day that happens is pretty much based on how often you train, how well you eat, and how you present yourself on social media. And really? when, the, when the double taps stop coming, you know, imagine men and women, imagine that constant pressure that soon you're not going to be valid, you're going to be old news, and someone's going to be a, a newer, better version of you in HD who's better on Adobe Photoshop. And it's, it's quite a scary thing because then mm-hmm. your clothing and supplement brand, brand drop you. Now you've got to find another way to, uh, you know, pay your mortgage so you start pt in a gym now you've got less time and energy to train you're starting to look even worse and you're going to downward cycle and we've seen the mental health issues of people that come off love island imagine if your identity for 10 years was being in good shape and now no one wants to sign you yep it's how fickle the industry is isn't it with regards to models and modeling isn't it um is why I almost, which is why I'm, I look at those things and I think to myself, um, you know, we have to have more. Does that make any sense? Like you can do it, like do the, you know, if you're a model, if you're a model, great. Like, you know, do it. Like it, it looks like a very fun career in some aspects. Um, but what about when that ends? Like, are you doing all the other stuff? And this is why I love when actors are like, hey, I'm an actor, but I do ceramic pottery in, in, in the back and I have my, and I have a, and I have a shop like, that sells this stuff because like, if I stop getting roles, I still have a shop and I still have a purpose. And you know what I mean? Or, you know, and as you said, we just talked about, um, you know, real estate and all that stuff. But, you know, I feel like we, um, this, this idea of one thing for the rest of our lives, it doesn't make it, it it's a very temporary um, culture that we have right now and um i i would love that for there to be a a world where we value people um regardless of age regardless of ability and whatnot and um and gender and sexuality and all those things we just you know and we just say good on you you're doing that you're having a great career like just have a long sustainable one you know um but yeah and i i just i just liked what you said about you know about the sister about the, the attainable um, physique on men's health and every time I walk past it in the shop I'm always just like there's no point me picking this up because all the all the exercises are the same and it's just basically body shaming 
people because there always there always be something that men lose weight around your abdomen. It's a cause of diabetes, cancer, all of these other things. And I think that just I think that's not the best messaging. I mean, it might be true in some in some instances, but I don't think it's the best messaging because to to shock people and and scare them into buying into buying something, I think is a bit manipulative in places. Absolutely, and I mean. Um... I've again a lot of personal trainers fucking hate me because they're like, how's this guy got so many clients? And the truth is, I've just positioned solutions to people because I know what problems they have. Here's how to use my fitness pal. It's not a very sexy post, but it's one that works. And <laughs> if you can present someone a solution to their problems, you're going to do very well. And it's funny what you say there. And not a life coach, I write about there's a steak restaurant that I was in a few years ago and I said to myself, if it doesn't work out, I'm going to come work here in the state restaurant. I'm going to get a dog and we'll work evenings. And I'll take up a hobby during the day and I will spend the day with the dog. I'll do the evening serving steaks and I'll be the happiest fucking person ever. Because imagine spending six hours with a dog on a beach and going to work. You'd be like, this is the best day ever. And since then I've thought about it and I was like, if I said, you know, it's 2020. Imagine I put out a tweet that fucking ends my career, right? And, you know, the, that's very possible. I would take any savings I have and I would find a coastal town in Australia and I'd open a jiu-jitsu studio and I would knock on every single door in that town, flyering, getting people to come in to just try one session for free. How many people would I really need to run a profitable business? Let's say 100. If there's a town of 10,000 people, I'm, my my rate of getting people converted over to that isn't a lot. Every time I lose someone, I'll go out knocking on doors again. And I can run a very small business in somewhere in the world, and I could teach jiu-jitsu, which I fucking love jiu-jitsu, not after my weekend of competing. And yeah. I could just grow old, and I could see my dog between classes. I could go swim in the sea and all of that shit. And I always think about that. I always remind myself of that, because irrelevant of status, following blue tick, or fuck all that, I don't need that, because if I find something I like, and I find an area that I want to be in, so a passion, an environment. And I knocked on doors selling gas and electric for Empower back in the day. So going around, hey, my name's James. I've just opened a jiu-jitsu studio, whether it's self-defense or exercise. I'd love to come in for a free session. No obligation. Here's my number. Give me a text. Blah, blah, blah. Like, they, for anyone, that's, that's possible. And mm-hmm. it's one of those things where, you know, imagine you, someone comes in, they are um, too overweight. Okay, cool. Well, I'll help you with that whilst doing something else. But your problem isn't that you haven't got a six pack. Your problem is you're probably over consuming the amount of calories. Why don't you come to jujitsu three times a week and don't try not to eat more than this amount of calories. And you can start to present people solutions that work for them, that mm. feel, in, feel intrinsic. And if you look at motivation, intrinsic people do it because they want to do it. Extrinsic, they do it through either a benefit, often money or avoidance of something bad happening. If you get someone to exercise to stop them having a heart attack, you are extrinsically motivating them and they will not continue to do it. That's why people still continue to smoke. You put on the side of cigarettes, this will kill you. Nah, they, they, they're, just, they're just not going to do it. And mm. I think that people fail to realize that you have to get someone to, do, to want to do what they want to do. And I, like, I would convert all my clients to be Joe Rogan fans. And I would make them wake up and listen to that podcast and not come home mm-hmm. until they finished it when they go walking. And if they like listening to podcasts and they like that routine, it's intrinsic. And for love or money, hey, do you want to come for breakfast? Now I've got the podcast. I'm doing my 30,000 steps. Like We need to kick with the wind with people. And I think that it's a bit of a shame that so many people aren't 
proactively doing that. And it is, like you say, shaming. Do this exercise or, you, or you'll die. And that doesn't motivate yeah. people. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, because I, I do want to ask you about podcasting, but I want to ask you about um, jujitsu. Now, I've... it's Okay. I have a thing where in my mind, I'm a martial artist. So in my head, somewhere in there, I'm doing all sorts of like things. But in reality, I'm sitting in my loft room, writing and doing all these other stuff. I used to do martial arts growing up. Um, and I've, and I was looking around for other martial arts. I used to do Kung Fu. So, there's a part of you as you go older, you kind of look back and all the stuff you did growing up, and you're like, oh, I want to kind of get back into that again because those were the those were the parts of you that were really like you or the or the truest bit. You know, you're 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 trying out different things and whatnot. But then I started looking at different um, martial arts around, and I start and I found um, I started reading into Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Now I wanted to just kind of like get your get your take on it. I don't know that you are a proponent and you love it. Um, yeah, so. What is the sales pitch for jujitsu? And like, when it comes to fitness, what does it do for you? Because all I'm seeing is it's grappling, and it's a lot of like dragging people to the floor and then choking them. And I'm like, okay, well, this is great for like if you're in a bar, like you know, if you're in a bar and someone tries it. But also, like, what is the fitness side of it that comes with uh, jujitsu? Well, the first thing is that every time you go to training, you can spar, and you can spar as hard as you like, and the repercussions for failure are not bad. If we do kickboxing, taekwondo, box, uh, boxing, even kung fu, if I throw a strike and you fail to block it, I'm going to hit you. <laughs> and being hit is, is shite. Now, if I go to restart jiu-jitsu and I do a sweep and I win, you end up on the floor. But that doesn't really hurt. And then from then, <laughs> you're, you're laying on your back. So then I go to advance my position, so I lay on top of you. Now, me laying on top of you, you've made a mistake, but it's not that bad. Now you're about to make your second mistake by turning away. And as you turn away to escape, I now hold on to your back. You've now made your second mistake. Now I'm on my back. You then go to grab my legs to get my legs off of you. And I now put my arm around your neck. You've now made your third mistake. But your repercussions in making mistakes are not bad. You then go to grab my arms. I now get my legs around you. You now go back to grab the legs and I secure the choke. Now... But at this point, you know you're done. So you're already getting your hand ready to tap. I start putting on the choke, yeah. and you tap, and you get up. And I say, don't let me take you to the floor. All right, so then I take you to the floor again. And then when you're laying there, I say, don't turn away, turn into me. And we start. you start to learn. Now, suddenly, you don't make the third mistake. You still make the first and second mistake, but you don't make your third. And every time you go, it's this small little margin. It's this little, put your hand here, not here. Do this, not that. Defend here, not this side. And there is no crash course. I've been doing it for three years and every day I'm humbled and I mean humbled and to turn up. And my, my favorite thing about the sport is the respect in it. When people come in, they're new people take time and with boxing, no, I oh, don't get him in the ring. He can't box or whatever. When I'm with a white yeah, belt, yeah, yeah. I, I really enjoy teaching them stuff and watching them get better. Then suddenly I go to take them down and they don't let me. And I'm like, Hey, you, you're learning. And mm. after training, we have to wipe down the mats. All of us, we get our geese off, we get a bucket, we get a sponge. Everyone's wiping down the mats. Now, over half of the people in my gym don't know what I do for work. And they don't care. And that's great. 
And it doesn't matter if I have a blue tick or a fucking Sunday Times best-selling book. When we line up, we line up in belt order. At the end of training, we all shake each other's hands and give each other a little hug, and we all wipe down the mats. It doesn't matter what your religion is, what color your skin is, you know, where you're brought up, what country you're from. For those two hours of training, we're a family in hierarchy of the knowledge of the sport, and we're all there to help each other out. And they say if you want to be brilliant at something, you need to spend 30% of your time with someone worse than you, 30% of your time with someone the same level, and 30% someone better. And you, it doesn't matter who you are in the world. Unless you're mm-hmm. one person, there's someone better than you. And the sense of humility that, that I've, I've had a very good week. I've had a very good few months, actually, with work and with everything. And go the weekend, I got fucking schooled in jiu-jitsu. And mm-hmm. it's great to know out on the mats that I'm not as big as I think I am. I'm not as great as I think I am. My training hasn't paid off as much as I thought. I'm not, and and to be schooled like that in such a respectful way, I've got no concussion. I've got no marks on my face. I just made more mistakes than the guy I was up against did, and he capitalized on it. And the only thing that you bruise, this is probably the closing point, the only thing that you'll bruise at training is your ego. And I think that is so important for development. Mm. Okay, okay. Um, and, I th- and I think that that's a great... Um, a great point. Um, so it's more of a character building martial art. I mean, most martial arts are, tend to be character building, aren't they? Because they are. It's, it's your, I love it when big, big, strong rugby players come to training. They are the easiest people because they're they're overconfident with what they have that they fail to do the small things correctly and they make mistakes. And you will see a little person capitalize on the mistakes the big person makes, and it's. Mm. It's a, it's a human chess. It's human chess. Mm. And you mm. can set traps for people. And the best people in the game are often wow. like philo- philosophers. I saw a post yeah. the other day where uh, he said that the Mongols used to surround their enemies and give them a little escape. And when the, their enemies would run out through the gap, they would drop their weapons to run faster. Then the Mongols would come catch them up and kill them all one by one when they were unarmed. And he goes, in jiu-jitsu, you do the same. You set a trap. You make them feel like you've made a mistake, and then you capitalize on it, and you choke them out. And oh, wow. you get like a little look from them. And even in the middle of sparring, you could be like, what did you just do? You know, hey, let me teach you this. And then they go do it on another white belt. And you're like, you're happy <laughs> for everyone to get better. And it, I tell you what, to anyone listening, go do one session. That's all you need. Yeah, yeah. If we can do one session, I don't even know if we can in this uh, – in this time but I'm looking into it and I, it's something that I've always because I'm always like as much as it's about the mental kind of aspect of it and the philosophies that come with it like because I'm, I'm a huge once I can get once I can give it a bigger purpose than what it actually physically serves it's usually a no-brainer for me to kind of get into this stuff um, but I'm also like looking at the physical aspect of it and you know what are the kind of the, what are the physical changes that you've seen while doing jiu-jitsu if you have been looking but then you train as well, don't you, in the gym? So the I do time. a lot. I do a lot less gym training now. Um, did you? Did you ever grow up with brothers or sisters? I am the oldest. I'm the oldest. <laughs> Just forget, yeah, I'm the oldest of three. Did you, you used to play fight when you were younger? No. Oh, no, no play fight. Because I'm, I'm, I'm the oldest, so I had to I had to be mature, um, and the age gap is a bit 
the age gap is a bit big as well. So by the time I even got to a particular age, it was like, well, I'm collecting them from school. I'm picking them up. I'm doing all this stuff. But yeah, so no, and, um, never really had, I was never really that guy. Me and, me and my friends used to, well, my neighbour as well, we used to have play fights. We used to call them duffs. And if he wanted to watch the cricket and I wanted to watch something else, I'd say, let's have a duff. And whoever ended up with the remote would win. And we'd have these play fights. Okay. And you see kids having play fights and you see animals having play fights, a litter of puppies. They're at each other all day having play fights. They're not biting too hard. Yeah. And that's exactly yeah. what we do at training. It is human play fighting. And there are rules so you don't get hurt. But as far as the physical aspect of it, it's intense. There's a lot of grabbing, picking up. And when there's a human body on top of you, it takes a lot of effort to get them off. But then not only when they're off, you now need to put another limb between you and them to keep them off. And it, it sounds very strange. From a mental health perspective, jiu-jitsu is great because there is nothing on your mind apart from what you're doing. But also, in a very strange way, having an element of touch with someone, whether you're manhandling someone or they're manhandling you, it feels very normal and it feels very uh almost like humane and you know rugby players they put their arms around each other they sing the national anthem they grip on each other's shirt i think it's a very primitive kind of thing that we should be fighting each other and even though there are rules to protect each other i also think from a human psyche perspective for hundreds of thousands of years we fought each other not to kill each other because even in ufc when a body goes limp people don't want to hit it and I think that beating your chest and fighting people is something that's, you know, we see it in the animal kingdom, so we can know it definitely happened with us. And when you're frustrated, when you've got something on your mind, when you want to let out some steam, throwing someone around in jiu-jitsu and them having to throw you around and getting all that frustration out, I think it's a real shame that gyms are closed at the moment for martial arts because I do see it as an avenue that people use to channel their mental health. And to have that, that element of touch, that element of fight, that element of ferocity and adversity to be taken away from people, I think is a real big disservice to people's well-being. Mm, yeah, for sure. Um, because not everybody can get on, not everybody gets on with the gym. Um, and I think it's, a, it's that human contact, that kind of community aspect, that kind of being in a group. Um, idea and working together with with other people um, is something that you don't really get in a gym unless you're working unless you're going with somebody that you know or you make friends in the gym and it's not always the most friendly friend place yeah and to make new friends that makes any sense someone there was one new guy training today i was late training i go in i'm like hey mate what's your name and we all slap hands bump fists and then i'm like oh wait i hear an accent i'm like where you from and i'm like getting ready while i'm training i'm like sweet i'm like and Whenever I see a white belt, I'm like, oh, how long you been training? Oh, sweet. Yeah, come, come. Any positions you want to start in? And you do have this, like, community. And it, it might, I always think if aliens came from another country and looked at uh, from another country, if they came from another planet, looked at us like, <laughs> like ants, they'd be like, look at these ants yeah. over here, all getting dressed up and jumping on each other. But yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm definitely yeah. passionate about it. Amazing, amazing. Um, but, yeah, okay, on to, to, to wind up this conversation I had a pleasure speaking to you by the way I really enjoyed this conversation um podcast um how long have you been doing the podcast why did you start it and um are you enjoying the process I started about a year and a half ago and um so you're new to the game yeah it's not it's not been a a huge thing and it was really just Mm. another social avenue because if 
if you look at my, you'll probably notice I'm a little bit different in a longer format than I am on Instagram because I appreciate mm-hmm. the monster it is that Facebook and Instagram is short, sharp. I, in some cases, I have three seconds to grab someone's attention. So I need mm-hmm. to be crass. I need to be vulgar. I need to swear a lot more. I need to be less compassionate. I need to be less empathetic because I'm fighting for attention out there. I'm fighting to, to get that. And, and, podcasting i didn't realize not only gave me the ability to talk in a longer format but it also allowed me to be more myself and to talk through things a lot more because people commit to a podcast you don't just put it on and swipe past it to see someone topless in dubai um and it i've really enjoyed uh, having a podcast having guests on and, and shooting the shit with it i and i think that it's a bit like journaling it's getting emotions out and i think not to say disservice to therapy i think a therapy is a lot of people just saying what they're thinking and i think that you know i know our discussion today about psychedelics has made it's made me feel excited about them again it's made me feel like mm. happy to talk about and um yeah i think podcasting is only going to grow where now people see journeys and commutes and stuff as a place to develop themselves i'm a I personally listen to podcasts as I fall asleep. And I, if, when I'm dating a girl, I'm like, hey, I've got a podcast I'm listening to. It's about space. It's about black holes. Um, you cool over there? It's not too loud. I'm going to sleep. <laughs> um, what has been what some of your best uh, interviews or the most interesting ones you've had? Oof, uh, if, it's kind of a... I've had a few of my friends and peers on and people that I look up to in the industry, I very much like uh, having on, but some of the kind of, one of my friends called Ben came on, he's got Crohn's and he's in fantastic shape. Ben Carpenter, his name is. And everyone, when he's at his illest, when he's really struggling with Crohn's, he's fucking shredded. And everyone's like, oh, I wish I could look like you. And he's like, I'm living with an illness. You really don't fucking wish you could look like me. And I loved yeah. having that discussion with him. One of my ex-girlfriends had Crohn's and it's debilitating. It's, it's literally horrible. And from the outside, you think he has everything when he would give anything to just have a normal digestive tract, to, to not have that autoimmune condition and to hear him speak out about the fact that he can't eat certain foods. He can't do this and can't do that. Um, it, that was a really powerful podcast for me because for once it wasn't just me. I was like, listen to this guy. And when he dropped the bomb about it and how it had fucked him up and how it still fucks him up, it was, I really enjoyed that because I think that really gave people a, you, you never know what's going on behind someone's six pack. Mm. Yeah, that's true. Right. So we're going to have to come to it and end there. Um, but where can people actually before that, do you have a few books that you want to suggest to anybody or a few podcasts that you want to suggest to people listen to or um, anything that you that's like on your radar that you want to share? I'm going to go really like left field with some uh, interesting ones here. So if anyone's got any interest in space, listen to Neil deGrasse Tyson's podcast called Cosmic Queries. Uh, and it's like a and a he does, right, with uh, people. It's called Star star talk and people asking questions and he answers them but he breaks it down for people so someone will go what's at the edge of space and 
having an astrophysicist ask these questions, it's amazing. And you always have something to talk about when pubs open. Uh, as far as books, I'm going to throw out there uh, Stillness is the Key by Ryan Holiday, which was a very good book for me. Uh, I'm actually going to put in Ego is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday, which again was uh, a very like life-changing book for me. And I'm going to say Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. You, I, by the looks of it, you've, you've read those, those books. Yeah. Yeah, I love them. Um, I think Ryan Holiday is very in- a very interesting um, man. Just in general, just an interesting person. And um, yeah. yeah, all of those things, I will be checking those out. And to listeners, yeah, uh, go and check those stuff out. It will all be in the show notes and on the website for you guys to kind of go in and consume um, and whatnot. But again, I want to say thank you uh, for joining me, James. This was a really, really, really fun conversation. Um, where can people find you and where can they find your book? I was very fortunate to be born with the name James Smith. So uh, <laughs> if, if you if you manage to put that into social media, hopefully just look for the blonde blonde guy with white teeth and uh, you should find me. <laughs> uh, yeah, and Not a Life Coach is the name of the book. And I'm sure if they uh, put any of those words into a search engine, they'll be able to find it. Amazing. And for joining me i'll catch you all next week you know to find me just drop me a message in all the usual places and that's the end of the podcast thank you so much for listening as you've probably heard you can connect with james on instagram at james smith so you can just whack his name into instagram find the one with the blue tick and that will be him so a big thank you to james for joining me on the show this week i want to shout out to ryan nile and pure creation media for producing and editing and providing music for the show so that's ryan.nile.show on Instagram or Pure Creation Media on Instagram. So check them out. They're super dope. Um, Ryan's a good friend of mine and I appreciate him for all of the support he's been giving me with producing the show. Uh, the show's executive produced by myself. But you can go and find me on Instagram at byalexholmes where you will find all of my wellness bits and pieces and you can catch me on vero vero.co forward slash alex reads where i share all things book related so i want to say thank you again for joining me on this week's show make sure you rate review and subscribe share the podcast as far as you can i'm looking forward to joining you on friday where we will have a conversation with one of my good friends so looking forward to talking to you then catch you then